Good morning, Chapel Hill. You like the tie? Thanks. It's great to see all of you here. I just want to drink in your faces for a moment because when it's on a a holiday weekend and it's sunny and you're in church, that says something about who you are and how important worship is to you. So good for you for being here. It's great to be able to share in this great day, this great weekend when we honor those who've paid the ultimate sacrifice that we might do what we're doing right now, which is to worship freely. And all you got to do is look around the world right now and see this, the, even the Coptic uh, Christians in Egypt, uh, the assault that they are under for their faith. Thank God for the freedoms that we enjoy and for the price that we paid to, uh, to accomplish that. So welcome to this celebration of worship. Uh, as uh, Pastor Larry mentioned, we have so many things going on, it's hard to keep them all straight. But I do want to remind you that next week, in addition to being our consecration Sunday, when we're going to bring our gifts, our pledges, uh, that is, to, uh, to be on these walls, we're going to bring them to the altar. In fact, it'll be right down here. We're going to have our communion table down here. Uh, it's also an important weekend for a, a different reason, and it is Pentecost Sunday. And so what do we do on Pentecost? We, we wear red. So some of you got to jump on it, and that's great. Uh, but next week, I hope we see a, a sea of red to, to remind us of the tongues of fire that came down upon, um, upon the people. Um, <clears throat> we were a pinochle-playing family growing up. Uh, any of you were pinochle-players? Uh, you never played pinochle like we pina- played pinochle. It was a blood sport in our in our family. And my father, who was ordinarily a very merciful, gracious, and gentle soul, uh, when it came to pinochle, it was no holds barred. And one of his uh, favorite sayings was, it's all over but the shouting. It's all over but the shouting. I hated that. <laughs> well, with regards to our Beyond These Walls initiative... It is almost all over, uh, but the shouting. We're getting near the, the end. We're at the tail end of this, uh, of this in- initiative, and I'm really grateful for the, the part that all of you have, have played. If you weren't here last week, you had a chance to see in the bulletin the amazing uh, uh, jump start that was provided to our church family by a few dozen families who pledged uh, over $2.6 million towards our goal of $5 million. It's pretty astounding, isn't it? So we've got a great jump start, and, and then uh, next week we're all going to come together, and uh, we will lay our sacrifices on the table before the Lord, and, and, we, and, then it, and then on Father's Day, which is also Bluegrass Weekend, that will be the time for shouting and, uh, and celebrating, and I can't wait to see what the, the Lord does. Um, our finance person, Don, uh, keeps trying to show me the, the updates because more uh, pledges are already coming in. I finally said, I don't want to see them anymore. I want to just keep my head down. I want to keep praying. I want to keep preaching. I want to keep leading. And then I want to be surprised along with the rest of the congregation. Uh, so uh, anyhow, it's, a, it's an exciting time and uh, look forward to uh, uh, Father's Day weekend, Bluegrass weekend. Remember, one service, so 10 o'clock, one service uh, on the Sunday morning, one service on Saturday night, and we will see what the Lord is going to do. You got to sign up for that pulled pork barbecue, though, so if you haven't done so, get to it. Uh, we had, a, as you know, a, a town hall meeting last Thursday night for those who had uh, f- follow-up questions. We had about 30 people that showed up, and, uh, and the elders were there. And one of the persons asked a question about Beyond These Walls that I think it was a good question. They asked if talking about money on Sunday mornings, like we have been, uh, if that scares visitors off. And I suppose it's possible. I know it scares some members off. Um, <laughs> and I'm looking forward to seeing them back in a couple of weeks. Um, But actually, several visitors have been captivated 
by the vision of beyond these walls. They, they, their hearts have been capped. I had this email from one person last, last week. I've been following your Beyond These Walls sermons online while in Arizona. And I find them so inspiring and uplifting. My husband and I want to join the church. When is the next class? So, yeah, that's, pretty, that's a pretty good response. So if you do happen to be visiting us this weekend and you're, you know, the first, the first time, let me just set your hearts at ease. You don't have to join the church. You, you have no obligation whatsoever, but you do have the privilege of listening in to the tail end of a family conversation about our future as, as a church. What we think that the Lord, what our past, our elders think we are being called to in the, in the next five to ten years of our life. And we believe that it's time for us to move beyond our walls in ways that we've never done before. We are grateful for these walls. They are awesome walls. We will continue to care for our walls, but it's time for us to move beyond them. And we've talked about doing that in three ways, okay? Three ways. Let's see how many of these you remember. First of all, we want to release leaders. We believe that the Lord has called us to raise up and to nurture and to send out uh, pastors and missionaries into the world. We are a sending church in that respect, and so we want to double down in that way. We also believe that the Lord has called us to love Gig Harbor as we've never done before. And we've always loved Gig Harbor, and we've always served Gig Harbor and poured ourselves in. But in these strategic partnerships that you've heard pa- uh, mentioned in the weeks past, we think it's an opportunity for us to impact our city and our surrounding area, the peninsula, in ways that we have never done to bless our community for the sake of Christ. And then this morning, I'd remind, remind you of the third part of our Beyond These Walls initiative, which is we want to multiply life groups. Multiply life groups. And you saw the life group story was illustrated by Brian and Stephanie in the video earlier today. Some years back, our session determined that our Our primary purpose as a church was to fulfill the great commission of Jesus, which is to make disciples, to make disciples. That's why we exist. And further, your session, your elders determined that the most effective way to make disciples is in small groups that we call life groups. Yeah, coming together to worship every weekend, it's important, it's vital. And, uh, but it's not going to make disciples if that's all you're going to do. Having uh, Bible studies together, it's important. But it's not going to create by, uh, disciples the way we think Christ has called us to do. The only way that we create disciples is to come together in communities that are intentional for that purpose and, are, and grapple with God's word and pray together and hold one another accountable and, and do mission together. That's how we think. We, we build disciples. And by the way, we didn't make this uh, method up. When we are making disciples this way, we're following the model of, yes, Jesus. I mean, we're following the model that Christ get taught. I mean, we see examples of Jesus teaching large crowds, of course, and he gives them fish and loaves, and, and we see great miracles, and the Sermon on the Mount, and all of that stuff we see. But Jesus' primary focus was to pour himself into the lives of 12 men. That's what he primarily did. And that was what he, he bet the future of his gospel ministry on. Not on the crowds, and it's a good thing, that, isn't it? Because they, they pretty much dissipated when things got tough. Even his 12 kind of had some moments. But he bet the future of the church on these 12 men. And in this sermon series, we have been looking at uh, accounts from the gospel of Matthew of how Jesus took these raw recruits and transformed them into the kind of disciples that made history. 
that changed the face of the world, that really impacted your life because you believed the gospel that was handed down to you from them. And so we've talked about little pieces of that, what it looked like. First of all is the call. Remember that conversation? The call. Our our journey into disciple-making begins with the invitation of Jesus one by one by one. We can't hide in the crowd on this one. Uh, when you, you must hear that individual call of Christ to you and to you, to you and to you to, to follow me. And only when you respond personally to that invitation can you begin that journey of discipleship, right? The, uh, the next thing we, we talked about was um, conspicuous. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ unless you're willing to be out there. Salt doesn't flavor, doesn't, doesn't preserve anything that it doesn't touch. Light that remains under a basket is no good. And uh, disciples are never never going to make a difference in this world, never going to make history unless they're willing to get out there and touch and reflect the light of Christ in their life. Last week we talked about the courage. Remember the courage of Peter. Peter was willing, while the rest of them hunkered down in the boat, he was the one who said, Lord, bid me come to you. Command me to come to you. And I will, and I will do that. And, and so Jesus did, and Peter stepped out. Yes, he had his moments. He, he wavered on his faith. But we saw in Peter the kind of courage that is required of the disciples of Christ if they're going to do something extraordinary. Uh, if you're not willing, to, if you don't have the guts to get out of the boat, you're never going to make a difference. Isn't that right? And then this morning, we are going to talk about another word, confrontation. And you might say, well, that is a very harsh-sounding word. And I grant that it is. So I'm going to share with you a gospel reading from, from Matthew chapter 16, beginning with verse 13. And then you tell me if it's a fair title for the principle that comes out of the story of Jesus in Caesarea Philippi. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he said to his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for the gift of this story, Lord, and we pray that the truth of it would uh, spring forth from our hearts, our lives, as your Spirit brings it alive for us. Thank you that you are at work doing that right now, and we, we proclaim with Peter, you are indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God, and be, uh, be honored in our lives in this moment, in this worship right now, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Caesarea Philippi is about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It's at the foot of Mount Hermon. It's really one of my favorite places in uh, Israel. It is verdant. It is green. It is, it is cooler than the rest of Israel. There's a great uh, river that flows out of the side of a mountain uh, there. 
uh, that is quite lovely. It's quite beautiful. Uh, this is a, a significant place in uh, religious history in this part of the world because for centuries and centuries it has been a center of pagan worship. In the Old Testament times, it was a center for Baal worship. Remember the prophets of Baal? Uh, who was a fertility god or a series of fertility gods actually. In the third century, it became a center for the worship of the god Pan. Pan was a half-goat, half-man deity who was renowned for his virility. As a matter of fact, some of the worship activities include activities with goats that I will leave to your imagination. It was bad, though. And then, finally, it became a center for the worship of, uh, for emperor worship. Uh, the, the Emperor Augustus, specifically. A temple uh, to Augustus was built in front of the great cave that, sits, that, that is in the, in the side of the hill there in Caesarea Philippi. It was destroyed by <clears throat> an earthquake. It is that cave, though, that really became a significant part of the reason of the fame for this as a pagan worship site. Because that cave, which you see on the left-hand side, was believed to be the access point between the upper world and the underworld. Between this world and the world of the spirits. That's what that cave was for, and that's why it was, uh, it was so important. Caesarea Philippi might seem like an odd place for Jesus to have taken some teenage boys, which is likely his disciples. Um, it was a center of pagan worship that featured very sexualized activity. Frankly, it was a place of deep spiritual darkness and paganism. And yet Jesus chose to lead them there. And so they must have had their mouths on the, you know, the jaws kind of on the ground and their eyes wide open as they watched the frenzied worship of, uh, of this goat man God. Uh, they, they, as they watched the, the worship that was dedicated to this dead emperor who had now been declared divine. And it was in this setting of, of really uh, frenzied pagan worship that Jesus asks this question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? That was his favorite reference to himself. Who do people say that I am, he was asking. I wonder, as the disciples heard this, if, if it, they wondered if they, it was a trick question. I, I think they were kind of on their toes. I hope we're getting this right. But they replied, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, come back to life. Some say that you're Elijah, as was predicted in the last book of the Old Testament, or maybe Jeremiah, or another prophet? And then comes the question from Jesus after perhaps a pause, which is really the most important question. And it really is the question that every human being will one day, one day have to give answer to. Every single human being one day will sit before the, stand before the throne of Christ and they will give answer to this central question of reality and eternity. Who do you say that I am? It's easy to speculate about what others think, isn't it? It's easy to talk about, well, some people say this and some people that. But frankly, it's cheap talk. And it's not very courageous, speculating what others might say. But then you get down to the rub. And that is the question, who do you say that I am? That is what requires courage. And Peter, predictably, was the first one to pipe up. He said, well, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. 
You are the Messiah, Jesus. You're, you're the ones that our people have been waiting for for, for centuries. Unlike this, this goat man God, unlike this dead emperor God, you are the true son of the living God. You're the real thing. You're the Messiah. It was one of Peter's finest moments, don't you think? Remember, last week we were talking about something that had happened perhaps a few weeks earlier when Peter was sinking into the Sea of Galilee and Jesus has to grab him, pull him back to safety and say, Oh, little faith. That's what he called him. Oh, little faith, there you go again. But, but this moment is different. This is Peter's finest moment and Jesus this time has a blessing for him. He says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. Blessed are you, Because God has given you a revelation. You didn't come to this in your own strength. You didn't come to this because of the teachings of any human being. You came to this revelation because the Father has given it to you. And since the Father has given you a revelation, I'm going to give you a new name. And I'm going to call you Kephas, Peter, Rocky. I'm going to call you Rocky. From now on, you are Rocky. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. This is one of the only two times that we read the word church in the Gospels. One of only two times, and the other one is also in Matthew later in chapter 18. The word gets used a lot in the the letters of Paul, but only twice in the Gospels. The word in the Greek is ekklesia. Would you say that with me? Ekklesia. And it means literally the called out ones. The called out ones. Would you say that? The called out. So I want you to tuck that away because we're going to come back to it in just a moment. But, so the story is here. Uh, uh, I, he built upon the confession of uh, faith that Peter had offered. Jesus is going to build his church. And now come the fireworks. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You remember that cave I pointed out earlier? Do you know what they call that cave, the access point between the spiritual world and the uh, upper world? Do you know what they called it? The gates of hell. How powerful must that have been for Jesus to be standing there in front of this maw uh, in in the wall of stone and said to his disciples, upon this confession of faith that you've heard your brother Peter offer, this confession that I am the son of the living God, for indeed I am. I'm going to build my church upon this, and the gates of hell, even, will not prevail against it. Here's the deal, though. Nearly everybody misinterprets this passage of Scripture. And here's how you've probably heard it taught in the past. Jesus promises to take Peter's profession of faith and upon that, he's going to have a foundation that he, will, that he will use to build the church. And the church will be so strong that nothing the devil throws at it, nothing that evil that comes its way will be able to destroy it. In fact, here's how our own ESV study Bible commentary puts it. It, write, it's, it writes this, Gates were essential for a city's security and power. Hell is the realm of the dead. Death will not overpower the church. Have you heard that kind of teaching coming out of this text before? Death, evil, Satan, they will not prevail against the church of Jesus. Isn't that right? And of course it's true. We, we do believe that to be true. Evil will not have the last word. Think of Christus Victor, whom we talked about some weeks back. So we, we do affirm that fact, but the problem is 
That is not what Jesus is saying here. In fact, it is exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It is not the church's gates that are being attacked. Do you see that? It's not the church's gates he's talking about. It's the gates of hell. We, the church, are not on the defensive. We are attacking the gates of hell. We're on the offensive. And the gates of hell, as strong as they appear, as impregnable as they might appear to be, will not prevail. In the end, our assault against the forces of evil, the battering ram of truth and righteousness that we bring to bear against the strongholds of our enemy will be too much. The gates of hell will be shattered and God's enemies will be routed. Isn't that exactly what we were talking about in our spiritual warfare series? The gates of hell shall not prevail. They will not stand. Do you see how different it is from the typical understanding of this text? And do you see how important it is for us as we near the end of our Beyond These Walls initiative? For this is exactly at the heart of Beyond These Walls. We are saying in this, we are not going to hunker down behind the walls of this church. We are going on the offensive. We're going to multiply life groups and train them to be courageous and send them out into their neighborhoods in the name of Jesus to destroy and bring down the strongholds of the enemy. We're going to release leaders who have been trained to proclaim boldly the truth, the faith, the power of Jesus Christ to a world that so desperately needs to hear this. And we are going to love Gig Harbor through strategic partnerships. Not because we think it's good to be good and nice to be nice, but because when we care for our community in the name of Jesus Christ, it gains a hearing for the one who is the only living God, the only Savior of a broken world. Do you remember the literal translation of the Greek word for church, ecclesia? Remember what it was? The called out one, say it again. Isn't that interesting? And isn't that perfect? The church from its outset was never intended to be an organization that builds walls and hides behind them. From the lips of our master, we are told that his church, built upon the the rock of confession in Christ alone, will be those who are called out. Out of the safety and nurture of our community and into a broken world. And yes, sometimes into a battle that is clearly a battle between good and evil. Last week, one of our longtime members asked an important question concerning beyond these walls. She asked this, how do we avoid becoming just another social service agency with hymns and robes? I think it's a very important question. Because many other churches and many denominations have gone that route. And the answer is this. Everything we do, we do in the name of, for the sake of, in the power of, through the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And we see every good thing we do as an assault against the gates of hell, which we intend to destroy, and whose victims we intend to steal from the clutches of the devil. That's how it's different. We cannot watch what happened in Manchester this last week. The horrible, satanic attack on innocent girls. We cannot watch what happened and not remember what is at stake. But when we look at those 
horrible images. It, it is easy for us to be overwhelmed, isn't it? To think, what in the world can I do against such evil? What possible difference can I make? And I dare say it starts with each of us in this room, each of us individually, taking the courage that we learned is necessary to being that kind of a disciple last week. We take that courage and we screw it up and we have the guts to step up and into daunting situations with the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. I heard a a wonderful example of this. The moment I heard it, I said, that's going in this sermon. It was from one of our own children's ministry leaders, Karen Rodenbucker. Many of you know who Karen is. She recently traveled to Ireland and had the opportunity while there to to be a nanny for a 16-month-old Patrick for a family that, that knows and loves her. And uh, she was pushing this baby Patrick around in a pram on the way to Tesco to get milk. Now, milk, that is the English translation. Pram, Tesco, uh, I need Ellis up here to do the rest of the translation. But pram, carriage, baby carriage, Tesco, that's their grocery store. Listen to what happened uh, as she went around the corner. Right smack in the middle of the alley were six big ruffians. This is her writing. Brawling, drinking beer, smashing bottles, and swearing a blue streak. My first thought was, they kiss their mothers with those mouths? (laughs) My second was my dad's voice in my head. Show no fear. Don't be a victim. So Patrick and I headed straight up the hill into the center of them, and I picked out the one that looked the meanest and said, Excuse me, kind sir, but could you point me in the direction of the Tesco? I need to buy milk for the baby. Baby Patrick took one look at all of them and said, Wow! (laughs) And all of the men laughed. The transformation of their faces was wonderful. They all looked like angels to me. The one guy said, Mom, you shouldn't be back here. There are some very unsavory characters around here. It's not safe. I told them that because they were there, I was in good hands. (laughs) Wow. So they walked me up the alley to Tesco. On the way, one of them asked what I did in America. I said, I worked for my church. They chuckled, and one said, of course you do. I told them we were finishing up a year of prayer, and one said, I don't talk to God anymore. He doesn't listen. I stopped in my tracks, and we all jumbled up. I said, you are clearly mistaken. My image of God is him sitting on the edge of his seat with his hand cupped to his ear, waiting to hear your voice. It was pretty quiet. Then I told him I would pray that he would find the courage to talk with God. And then they took me to the Tesco. They waited outside Tesco for me, one man every two feet. No wonder no one else came in the store. (laughs) Then they walked me down to the corner, and up the valley, uh, up the alley, came my family. I said, Look, there's my family, and began waving at them. I love the look on their faces as they. as they saw me surrounded by these nice men. (laughs) 
The guy said their farewells and warned me again to stay out of the alley, that it wasn't safe. But then they added that they were there most nights if I needed anything. <laughs> Isn't that great? I love the story. I love the humor of it. But I love the courage of it. Don't you? Karen was willing to walk right into the midst of something frightening. And by the grace of God, she ended up making six friends and drawing them a little closer to the God who loves them and gave his life to save them. The gates of hell could not prevail, could they? On this Memorial Day weekend, we are reminded of the ultimate price that so many have paid that we might live in freedom, courageous freedom. And I believe that beyond these walls honors that sacrifice because we declare boldly that we will continue that battle for what is good and right. We will not hide behind our walls, but rather we, the called out ones, will be courageous in confronting darkness and evil with the light and life of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the uh, way that you are teaching us to be brave. Thank you for the way you're teaching us to step out beyond our walls of comfort and uh, boldly into situations that might look frightening. Thank you for the ways that you redeem what seem to be irredeemable situations, irredeemable people, for none are that. And it begins with us. We were once apparently irredeemable, and you said, nah, let me prove you wrong. So thank you that you have saved us. Thank you that you are at work in saving this world for whom you sent your Son. And we pray that as we grow to be more courageous, more conspicuous, more aware of our own call in Christ, and more willing to confront evil when we encounter it, I pray, Lord, that you will do great, great things. Inspire your people. Encourage your people. Give us great heart and and confidence in your call. For we pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.